Hello, and welcome to Positive Vibes from the Valley. I'm your host, Ryan, and I work for the Northwestern Prevention Collaborative as the community liaison and training coordinator. So today we are talking about financial wellness, and we are here with Karen Poff. Hey, Karen, how are you today? I'm great, thanks. So basically, we're here introducing Karen Poff to you guys, and she has served as an extension agent with the Virginia Cooperative Extension for 33 years. She is responsible for planning, implementing, and evaluating research-based extension educational programs for, for diverse audiences with primary emphasis on family financial education in a five-county area in the northern Shenandoah Valley. Whew. What a mouthful, Karen, but that's a lot. So tell us a little bit in your own words, what do you do, how long have you done it, and tell us about maybe some accomplishments that kind of stick out to you. Okay, it's a lot easier than what that formal job description says. I just teach people how to manage their money. So that makes it pretty <laughs> easy. Anybody from uh, little types learning how to count their coins all the way up to uh, people retirement age and, and older. So anybody that needs help in how to manage their money more effectively and to improve their financial health it can come to extension. We have classes and workshops. I will do public speaking for community groups. We have individual help for people. The gamut of lots of different things, but the purpose being to provide that research-based connection from the land-grant universities. So Virginia Tech and Virginia State University are your public land-grant universities in Virginia. And we in Extension exist out in the communities. So you guys pay taxpayer dollars too, even if you didn't go to the university or those universities. So we're here to take that information, bring it out to where people can use it to improve the quality of their lives. Awesome. Well, that is a lot simpler than that textbook definition. But speaking of textbook definitions, so I mentioned that we're diving into this financial wellness, wellness dimension. And what I'd like to do is go ahead and define that for you. And basically the textbook definition says, the financial wellness dimension involves things such as income, debt, and savings, as well as a person's understanding of financial processes and resources. A person's satisfaction with their current financial situation and other prospects also come into play. Now that's a wordy textbook definition, but for you, Karen, I was wondering how would you define financial wellness and why is it important? Well, I have to admit, I cheated on this one a little bit. I, I thought I knew what my personal definition was, but I did Google it to see what I came up with as far as you know, what other people were saying. And what was so interesting to me was an article that I found of, of I think it was the Employee Benefits Research Institute had done a survey of employers and employees about exactly that, the definition of financial wellness. The interesting part of it was no one could agree. Not the <laughs> employers, everything the employers said were, was different from each other. There was no consensus in any way. And the same with the employees. There were like eight different uh, components of a definition and the employees were not in agreement at all. And so that actually strengthened my own definition because my own definition is that managing your financial resources in a way that allows you to meet your needs and accomplish your financial goals now and in the future. So 
that's it in a nutshell, managing your money so that you can meet your needs and accomplish your goals. And that's why all those definitions were different because it's personal. It's what is going to help you with your situation in your own life. And everybody's different. So everybody's definition is gonna be different. But as long as it works for you, that's what's gonna make it successful. Wow, well, I think that's a great definition. And I think you do a very nice job of explaining hey, this is your uh, financial wellness. So your needs, your, your wants, everything is going to be obviously personally different and individually different from other employees and employers. Um, and I think, so I'd like to hit you with a couple kind of quick fire financial questions. These are things that I know for myself personally, I often wonder, I know for specifically speaking about kind of younger people just kind of getting started, getting involved. I think there are a lot of questions that just float around out there. And one quick question I wanted to hit you with. So credit score, why, what is it and why does it matter? Well, your credit score is a compilation of how you've managed your borrowing in the past. So the, the actual number is less important than what's in your credit report. So people really are kind of obsessive about the number. And as far as the, uh, the industry is kind of obsessive about the number as well. So if you, if you have say a credit score above about 750 um, on the FICO scale, you're gonna get good interest rates. So you don't have to worry that you wanna try to get it up to above 800. You, 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 I guess financial health and financial wellness is a, is a part about balance as well. And so you don't want to be stressed all the time about everything. So if, if you look at your credit score and you think it can need improvement, of course, you can call Virginia Cooperative Extension and we can help you with that. But one way to start out with that is just to get a copy of your credit report and you'll quickly see what the issues are with it. If there's things that haven't been paid on time, if there's a lot of debt showing up, uh, if you don't have a very long credit history, all of those things are going to impact your credit score. So even if, if I had no idea what your number was, if I looked at your report, I could tell you which things you might need to work on to improve that score. Okay, well, it really sounds like kind of getting that credit report is the, uh, the first opening step, kind of that ticket to being in the know. Um, kind of piggybacking off of that, what is one tip to reduce debt? We hear about debt all the time at the national level and at the individual level, but can you give one tip to just to reduce your debt in a general way? Well, it would definitely be PowerPay. And this one's really easy. You can go to powerpay.org on um, the web, or there's also a PowerPay app that you can get on in the Apple store. And what PowerPay does, it's through the University of Utah Cooperative Extension, and it lets you have a snowball method. And you've probably heard that term, snowball method of paying off debt. What you do is uh, you can pick the, the uh, lowest debt with the lowest amount of payment, and then um, you pay something to everybody. But as soon as that, uh, smallest debt gets paid off because it's going to get paid off the fastest. You apply that amount to the next smallest debt with, hmm. along with whatever you were paying that creditor. 
and you keep rolling that snowball bigger and bigger. As you pay off a debt, you add that to the next payment and that's going to get your things paid off quickly. And, and it's not necessarily as quickly as possible because you would think highest interest rate debt first. That's what everybody would say. Financially, you're gonna pay the least amount of interest if you pay the highest interest rate first. The thing that happens with people a lot though when they're trying to do that is that highest interest rate debt is also going to take the longest to pay off. And so people get bogged down in making payments and payments and payments on this loan, trying to get it paid off. And they eventually give up because they don't see themselves making any progress. With the snowball method, you pay off that quick uh, payment, uh, the smallest debt, and then you feel successful and you move on to the next thing. And then you feel successful because that gets paid off and then you move on to the next thing. So a part of it is psychological, as well. Um, and if you can tackle your highest interest rate debt first, that's great. But if you're struggling, then starting with that smallest debt may, may be beneficial. And I really recommend people go to powerpay.org because you can actually play with different methods of debt repayment and it will print you out an amortization schedule, just like one you would have for your car loan or your mortgage with all your debts and when they're going to be paid off. Wow, that is really helpful. That's a great, great tip. I'll have to, I'll have to check into that for sure. Um, now, what about, so a lot of times, especially again, you know, at my age or really any age, you know, we, we always hear this buzz about retirement, retirement, you got to be saving for your retirement, but what about the people who maybe don't feel like they have enough money to save for retirement? Do you have any tips for those guys? Well, definitely. Um, and we're going to talk about a little more in a minute about sort of the, the process of preparing for retirement. And um, I would say for sure, people don't realize how much small amounts count. So starting early, even if you're starting small is important. You don't wanna say, well, I can't put a significant amount into my 401k or my Roth IRA. I don't have that much money. So I'm just gonna wait until later to start. No, no. You want to start putting in, if it's $5 per pay period, I don't care if it's $5 or $10, put it in and put it in regularly. And that is going to start building. And the value of the compound interest that's being gained on those small amounts is very significant. Um, there's a chart that I show people where someone who contributed when they were young to their retirement account, let's say they contributed, and I'm, I'm sort of paraphrasing kind of here because I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but they saved for say a 10 year period from age 25 to 35. And then somebody else didn't start, didn't start until they were say 35 and they saved and it was the same amount until they were 65. Hmm. Which one is gonna have more money? it actually turns out in the illustration that the person that saved for the, the younger time frame and then stopped ended up with more money. So wow. it's really important, even if you don't have a lot to save just $5 or $10 a pay period, try to increase that of course, as you can. Um, we've got lots of savings tips in the Virginia Cooperative Extension to help you do that, but don't make the mistake of thinking that a small amount isn't worth anything. A small amount gets you started, and that's where everybody needs to start. Well, we always talk about, you know, in, in most things, starting off small and, and again, getting getting those 
footholds kind of early on. And this kind of leads me directly into my next question. So when we're talking about how young people should get started in investing or planning their future, I'd like to share an image actually that you sent Karen with this financial wellness pyramid. Okay, so we should be looking at uh, first things first and, and kind of navigating through here. Karen, are you seeing that? I am. Excellent. Okay, so if you wanna go ahead and maybe we can start at the, the bottom because like you said, starting off small is what counts. And I think building that foundation is, is most important. Um, so kind of starting here, looking, looking at that foundation what are your thoughts, Karen? Well, I, I think the, the first question you asked me when we very first were starting this was about investing. And typically when I talk to people about personal finances, that's the first thing that they're gonna say is, what about investing? I wanna make more on my money. And that is important, but what tends to happen with people honestly is if they focus on investing at the beginning, some emergency comes along and they end up pulling the money out of their 401k to take care of the emergency. And that is not a good thing, um, especially if they had to pull it out while the market was down. So it's really important to lay the foundation. And that's why we have this laid out kind of as a pyramid. You're laying the foundation and you're building on each layer as you move up so that when you're ready to do things like investing, um, you're able to do it with money that isn't committed to something else and that isn't taking away protection from something else. So starting at the bottom, your living expenses and your current obligations, you know, make sure that you're able to comfortably meet those, those current obligations and take care of your needs. And that, that would be the first step. If you're having trouble doing that, or even if, it's just because you're kind of disorganized and so you pay things late, even if there's enough money, but it's not being managed effectively and it's still causing you stress. That's the area you want to focus on to get everything working smoothly at first. Then you want to have some emergency funds and savings. And this is not investments. A lot of people think at this point, well, I need to get that savings into investments. But what this emergency fund is, is money to keep you from having to use credit for emergencies. And it will stabilize your budget so that when the crisis comes along, when you're sick and can't work for a couple of weeks, or you have the emergency room bill, or your car breaks down when you weren't expecting it, those smaller emergencies, you'll be able to pay for them with this emergency fund. And that actually saves you money. People don't think about it, but if you paid for that emergency with a credit card and you made payments on it over time, then you paid interest. So that emergency, say a $500 car, car emergency, if you pay for it with your emergency savings, it costs $500. If you pay for it with credit, maybe it costs $600 or $650, depending on how long it took you to pay for it. So that emergency funds and savings for your, your goals uh, is really an important next step. And go ahead. No, that's a great point because a lot of times, um, you know, like you just mentioned, I think the idea of, of the emergency credit card or that emergency credit comes into play. Um, and, and I think for people to understand, 
that it, it does cost them more money to do it that way is really interesting. And I think it's thought provoking and something to keep in mind for sure. Absolutely. And the thing about credit and access to credit, that next step, it is really important to have access to credit. But what um, is useful to think about for that access to credit is for the big things. That access to credit is for things that you can't afford to save up for and pay right out. So it's not for the vacation that you can save up for for next summer. Yeah, you could use credit, but it's going to cost you more. Uh, it is for the vehicle that is a, a newer model, reliable vehicle that it would take you years to save up for, or for the home that it's going to, that, you know, it's very difficult for people, uh, almost impossible to save up to, enough to buy a home. Although I know people who've done it and, and done it a little bit at a time, saved up enough, did the foundation and so forth. Uh, so uh, that access to credit is important. And unfortunately, you have to use credit to have access to credit. So people need to, uh, to say have a credit card that they are using in order to build the credit so that when they get to that point of buying the newer model car or buying a home, they're gonna have access to credit. And to be able to do that, they don't have to get far into debt and they don't have to owe a lot of money. So that's another misconception that people have. They think, um, and, and some there's a lot of myths out there about credit too. People think you have to owe a lot on your credit cards to build credit, you don't. What, what builds your credit most is using it and paying it off on time every time. So you can buy your groceries on the credit card and pay it off at the end of the month. And if you pay it off in full at the end of the month, you're not gonna pay any interest. It's not gonna cost you anything and you're building your credit. So you don't have to carry a balance to build credit either. That's, that's another myth that people think, well, I have to make payments on it, no charging this month and making your payment at the end of the month is building your credit. You don't have to pay interest to uh, build your credit. So using those cards is important, but it doesn't have to get you into debt and it doesn't have to be um, a high level of use. You don't have to owe a lot of money on them. Just, um, it needs to be regular. Charge something every month, pay it off every month, do that over a period of time and your credit is gonna build. And of course, we have lots more tips in our classes and workshops that people can learn to, to gain better access to credit. Absolutely. Well, and that definitely makes sense and kind of continues on with our motif of starting small, making those, those correct steps. But like you said, not plunging yourself far into debt, but just taking those small steps to start establishing and building, um, building that credit versus having no credit at all. Um, and and kind of next year on the tier, and I'm going to kind of hit on two at once because when you and I spoke before, um, home ownership is a hot topic right now, uh, both kind of abroad and personally um, being in the market myself. And a lot of times it can be very frustrating and confusing, and and there's so much that I, that, that we don't really understand. And one of those again, you know, when we're looking at just different insurances across the board. Um, you know, and, and different, you know, home ownership, house insurance, renter's insurance. What, what is adequate insurance? Where do we start with that? And if you wouldn't mind, if we could also roll into home ownership with that, um, if you will. 
Sure. So insurance is a way to transfer the risk to the insurance company of a financial loss. So you don't have to buy insurance for every little thing. Uh, they'll try to sell you insurance for every little thing when you buy. I, I saw one time it was for a, a portable um, esteem uh, humidifier type of thing that you would breathe that would help you with your cold. Okay, it was $25 on um, uh, an internet retailer and they were gonna sell me a couple dollars worth of insurance in case this $25 item broke. You don't need insurance on those kinds of things. What you're doing with insurance is transferring the cost of big things that you cannot afford. So your house burning down, your car getting in a big accident, um, you're having to be hospitalized, those kinds of things that you wouldn't be able to pay for with your emergency savings. That's what insurance is for. So when we talked before, we were talking about renter's insurance because people don't realize how important renter's insurance is. The landlord's insurance only protects the dwelling. It does not protect yourself. So, mm. so whatever you have, and people say, well, I don't have, I don't have enough to have insurance. I don't have very much. So I don't, I don't have enough stuff to need insurance. If you can't afford to replace every item that you have in your home, then you can't afford not to have renter's insurance. Because if the dwelling burns down, that's what you're gonna to have to do, replace every item that's in your home. And renter's insurance isn't that expensive, maybe 12 to $15 a month, you know, depending on the company and comparison shop to get a good deal, but it's not gonna cost you hundreds of dollars to have renter's insurance. So that's one example. You need to look at the big risks and make sure that you're protected for those. And again, the same, of course, when we would move to homeowner's insurance, make sure that you have both the dwelling and the property covered. When we're talking about homeownership, um, that may be a goal for some people. It may not be a goal for some people, but it is something that the more you prepare and the earlier you prepare, the better it's going to be for you. So the rule of thumb, and people you know, don't faint when I say this, but the rule of thumb is have a 20% down payment. And that is steep for a lot of people. And, and so some people would look at me and say, there's no way I can do that. That's fine. If you can only do 10, you know, that's fine. But it's, it's best for you financially not to go in there and borrow 100% of the loan. One of the reasons it's not is because you're going to have to pay private mortgage insurance until you get up to 20% equity in that home. And so the, the closer you can get to 20% down payment, the less time you're going to be paying that private mortgage insurance. So saving up for that down payment is really, really important. It sounds what like other with, questions about homeownership. Well, it sounds like so with regards to that PMI insurance, it sounds like kind of one way or the other, you're going to get to that 20%. It's just, you may be paying additional along the way versus if you had saved it in the first place. Am I understanding that correctly? Yes, that's it. That's a good way to, to put it. And that is very expensive. It could be depending on the house, you know, it could be $100 a month more that you're paying for the private mm -hmm. mortgage insurance. 
So, you know, saving up as, as much as you can is going to really help in that regard. Well, and I, and I know, so we, we've kind of been building off this this entire time, talking about investments in a retirement plan, even with home ownership and everything, again, starting off small, saving up, you know, a little here and there, and again, just getting started. Um, what about this investments in a, in a retirement plan? I know you touched on that a little bit earlier, but would you mind to expand on that thought a little? Well, sure. I, I think, um, you know, we talked about starting small and, and putting in what you can. I think that people a lot of times um, don't realize how important the match is if their employer provides a match. So that, that's one thing I emphasize when I'm talking with people is your match, if, if, you, if your employer matches 100%, you put in $5 and they put in $5 and you're matching 100%, you've just made 100% on your money where are you going to get that kind of return on your investments? I mean, in the stock market, you're good. You're doing great if you get between six and 10%. With your match, you just got 100%. Wow. So your match is the very first thing that you want to do. You want to work your way up if your employer is matching to as, as high, as much of that match as you can get if they match 1% or 2% or 3%. You might not be able to start out with that. Start out with your $5. Then when you think you can uh, change it, make it $10. And then when you are a little freer with it, you know, you have a little bit more discretionary income, maybe you got a raise. And so you put, you got a 1% raise, put half of it towards that match and you, you've gotten started. And then just, you know, give yourself the, the, the half a percent raise instead of the full percent. It's money you weren't used to getting anyway. So go ahead and make that a habit. Another thing people can do is when they pay off a loan, let's say they've got their car loan and um, they've been used to paying $500 a month on their car loan and they're getting ready to pay that off. Keep paying that $500 and pay it into your um, IRA or your 401k or whatever, wherever your retirement savings is, especially if the company is matching. You wanna get up to the maximum of the match as best you can as quickly as you can. And that's going to be a huge benefit for you later on in life. It sounds like one of the best kind of things to do is establish that habit, right? And it sounds like what you're saying is building off of the habit that you've already established. If you've already established the habit of paying X amount of dollars for, for a particular item, just because you pay that item off, continue that habit and it'll pay dividends to you in the future. Absolutely. And as much as you can automate things as possible too. If you have to take action, all of us procrastinate, we get busy, we don't do things. If you've got to actually take an action to put money in savings, you're probably not going to do it. But if you set up your account so that a certain amount is automatically transferred from your checking to your savings every month, it happens behind the scenes and it's routine and it keeps building. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Now, this kind of final tip of the triangle here, what, what is an estate plan? It says it's important at any age. How is that important to, to people my age in their, in their 20s and, and through the board? Yes, and it, it's on the tip of the, the pyramid because that's most people think of estate planning as an older person who has gained a lot of wealth and now they're trying to figure out how are they going to pass that on to the next generation 
mm -hmm. um, in the future. And that gets more and more complicated with changes in tax laws that we're anticipating as well. But it's important at any age because all of us have things. And if you don't have a will, let me just assure you that the state that you're living in has a will for you. They have a plan as to what's going to happen to your property. And it may not be what you wanted to happen to your property. So it's really important to get that will written down. And if you're single, you would think, well, I'm single, it doesn't really matter. But you still have things that it may, you may care about who, who receives those. Uh, and even if you don't have a lot of money, if you have children, there's the really important issue of guardianship of those children. And again, the state, the state will decide. If you don't decide before you leave this earth, the state's gonna decide. So I certainly would rather be choosing who's gonna uh, guard my children uh, rather than having the state entity do that. So no matter what your age, having at least minimum a will in place is important. But there are some other state documents that are important. Uh, power of attorney is important because what would happen to you, again, even if you're single, that's still important because who's going to take care of your finances if you can't? If you're laid up in the hospital and you can't uh, do anything for yourself, who's going to make healthcare decisions for you if you're not able to do those things for yourself? So laying out those documents that's appointing your wishes as to who is going to um, assist in those tasks if you can't is really important. So it's not all about money, I guess, is the thing. It's about your future and what's going to happen if something would happen to you. Well, and as we've traversed this, uh, this financial wellness pyramid, I think it's important to point out what you just said, right? I mean, planning for the future starts right now, right now. And, and even on things that maybe seem very far away, it, especially, you know, with regards to this estate plan, there may not be a later. You may not get that opportunity again. So I think this is a very great resource for building that foundation and seeing that motif again and again as you move up through those, those layers. Okay, well, hey, thanks again, Karen, for going through the financial wellness pyramid a little bit with me there. So kind of pivoting here, we talk about goals all the time and setting these goals, starting early. But how do we set good goals. I've heard of smart goals, um, I guess, which is better than a dumb goal, but what exactly are smart goals? Smart goals are a way to think about setting your goal that will uh, be, make it easier to reach. So when I think of a goal, and when a lot of people, if I, if I asked you for, to tell me a goal, most people will say something fairly vague, like, and I'm gonna give you a, a financial example, but this concept can be applied to any part of your life. Uh, it's just, we're just making it specifically financial. So if I said, if, if somebody uh, said to me, what's a financial goal you have? Right now, I'd be saying I need a new car because my vehicle has 200 and some thousand miles on it and it's doing okay, but eventually it's not gonna be doing okay. So, so that, but that doesn't really tell you very much. 
Um, and usually what I say to my classes is, you know, do you think I'm going to reach that goal that I'm going to need a new car? And maybe, but maybe not, right? Because it doesn't really tell you very much. Now, if I use the SMART process and make it a SMART goal, I'm much more likely to reach it. So the first step in that is the S, and that is making it specific. So not just I'm going to need a new car, but in my mind, what kind of car is this going to be? Is it going to be a, a late model uh, SUV, like what I have now that's you know 20 years old, but um, get a newer one of those? Or am I going to get you know like my dream car, which was always a red Mustang? Um, kids are out of the house now. Maybe I can have my midlife crisis and do something fun. But you got to know how much is this going to cost me, you know? And so once you get the picture in your mind, it does a couple of things. One is it does solidify a cost. Then I can research how much does this type of vehicle cost. But the other thing it does is it allows you to visualize it. So now I have a picture of that goal in my mind. I could even print out a picture of that goal and put it on my refrigerator or better yet in my wallet. So that when I'm at the store and I look at the fancy coffee and I open the wallet and see the red Mustang in there, I say, oh, wait a minute. You know, I want the red Mustang more than I want a cup of coffee this morning. I'll make my coffee at, you know, from home, bring my coffee from home. So, so that S um, just really solidifies it for you. Then M is making it measurable. So that's where you put a cost on it. What's, what's the total cost of this going to be? The A makes it um, attainable. And we're going to talk about that more in a minute. But I have, to, I have to get all the way through SMART first before we talk about the two middle ones. So um, attainable or um, realistic is the R and time bound. So in making it measurable, you don't want to just know how, um, how, what the total cost is going to be. You want to know so that you can build this into your spending plan, how much you're going to have to save per month for how long. So I've got to get to the T and say, okay, time bound. Um, I, I want, let's make it, I want a $2,400 down payment in the next two years. Okay. So that makes it measurable. I need the down payment and that makes it time bound. I don't think my vehicle is going to last much longer than two more years. I better be ready. So not only does that make it measurable, you know exactly how much per month, I better save $100 a month every month for the next two years if I'm gonna have that down payment in time to reach the goal on time. Then we go back and look, look at, is it attainable? Is it realistic? Um, is it relevant to me? Does it meet my needs? There's um, some debate over that, that A and that R as far as, um, what those letters actually mean. You'll see different things when you see SMART spelled out in different um, organizations and, and you know, just whoever's, whoever's using the acronym. But they all mean, is it a goal I really want and can I meet it? Okay, that's what that A and that R mean. And so in the case of my goal of the $2,400 in, in two years, that again, that's we were talking about how it's specific to you. These goals are specific to you. Maybe that's reachable, but maybe it's not. Maybe I can't save $100 a month. My budget's too tight. 
I, I can only save $50 a month. Well, then I have to adjust my goal. Um, and that's another, another um, interpretation of that A is adjustable. Um, you can, you know, I could make it $50 a month and make my current vehicle last for four years. Or I can decide maybe I really can't afford that red Mustang. I'm gonna, um, you know, get something a little less expensive or maybe a little older so that I can have a lower down payment. So, you know, you make it work, you adjust it to work and make it realistic for your particular situation. And then it's a smart goal because then you have a dollar amount that you have in your spending plan every month that you're putting towards that goal. And we also suggest that those goals, people think about short-term, intermediate, and long-term when they're doing those SMART goals. Because a lot of times, again, if I asked you what's a goal you have, you probably are thinking of something that's short-term, something you want in the next year or two. But if we don't get started saving for the long-term goals, we may never get started saving for the long-term goals. So I suggest that people have three goals, a short-term, an intermediate, which is they, between maybe two and five years, and then a long-term goal. And that might, you know, the long-term goal might be retirement or saving for a child's college education, something that's really big. The midterm goal might be that buying a car or something um, that's gonna take more than a year to save up for. And if you have those three, then you're at least getting started on the longer term goals now so that that interest can compound and you can um, take advantage of the time and be ready when those goals actually get there. Great point. And I think like you're saying, by taking those goals and you know being specific, making sure they're measurable, um, adjusting them or making sure they're attainable, being realistic and sticking to that timetable, you know, like you said, it, it makes it more concrete. It gives you the blueprint to follow for, for your own goals, regardless if they're short-term, intermediate, or, or long-term. Right. And you can do the same thing even if it's not financial. It's still specific, right. um, measurable, how many pounds you're going to lose. It's still a time frame. You know, how many months is it going to take you? So that, that formula fits with anything. Well, Karen, I got to put you on the spot here a little bit, okay? So at the beginning of the episode, we, we talked a little bit about balance. And we talk about balance on this show with regards to the entire uh, TAMSA's dimensions of wellness. Um, and we talk about that balance between those different dimensions, right? And, and how we can balance that for our, our altogether kind of comprehensive look at wellness. When we're talking about financial wellness and, and for you, and I use this metaphor often when we're, you know, thinking like a cup, right? And we are so busy filling other people's cups. How do you keep your own financial wellness in check? How do you keep your own cup from going empty? What are some things that you maybe do to personally like maximize your own financial wellness in a healthy way versus maybe obsessive and, and kind of obsessing over that? Right. Well, I would say that um, it's really helpful because I'm married, so I'm, I'm going to you know, talk in relationship with my spouse. Now, you know, in some cases, you know, single people are going to be able to make their own financial decisions, you know, without, without um, collaborating with someone. But for me, my spouse is who keeps me um, 
down to earth and <laughs> grounded uh, in in things. So, and and you would you would not think about it the way that I talk about money management, but he's the one that reigns me in when I want to spend on something maybe that is not quite. <laughs> um, this may not be a need. It may be more of a want, or if we may be able to get by with something lesser. And um, so we don't stress out about it. And after 28 years of marriage, we don't argue about it, but we do keep in touch about it. And I would say, particularly, particularly to couples, that that is really important, that you touch base regularly once a week or every other week, have a time set up that you're going to go over the finances and talk about it and, um, and make sure that you're on the same page. And that is really going to help the relationship. Uh, it, if you know the divorce statistics, many times divorces are related to money, unfortunately. So good communication there is really important. One of the things that we did when we were younger, we don't do this quite as much now um, because our kids are out of the house now. And so we have less expenses. Uh, they've grown <laughs> up. So, But when we were younger, we actually had allowances for ourselves. Mm. And... We had a certain amount of money that we could spend each month that we didn't have to account to the other person for. So that reduced the arguments. You know, if I wanted to buy a pair of shoes or a new dress with my money, that was fine. No arguments. And if he wanted yet another hammer, being a builder, then he <laughs> could do that. And I didn't, I didn't nag him with, but you already have 50. Why do you need another one? And he'd be telling me, well, why this one was special and did something that the other ones didn't do. So um, everybody in the family having, having some amount of allowance, it really can reduce the arguments and help to keep the communication open. It also sounds like maybe being with that other person and, and communicating, uh, maybe spending habits, what's important, what's not important. It sounds like it, it brings a lot of that just to the forefront of your mind too, possibly. So maybe even for those you know, people out there who, who are single, or maybe they lack that close confidant, just taking that, that time to, to really sit down and kind of analyze their current financial situation. It sounds like that can go a long way as well. Absolutely. And the other thing, and again, I, I kind of have to speak from experience, um, from my previous experience on this, because our, our budget is not as tight as it used to be, you know, when our kids were small and such. But when I first started out in this job, um, you know, I had the book knowledge, but I didn't have any, any you know, practical knowledge. Mm -hmm. And I started out, there was no place, literally no place to rent when I came here. I was straight out of college. I didn't have much money saved and no place to rent. I had to buy um, in order to have a place to, to live. So my very first job out of college. And my parents helped me get into the, the home. But that was a lot of stress on a 22-year-old to have a mortgage. And I was obsessed, like you were saying, you know, obsessing about money. I was really obsessed. And I didn't spend on anything. I didn't spend a penny on anything. I had one piece of furniture. It was a futon. And I, I'd lay it down at night, sleep. That was my bed. I'd sit it up during the day, and it was my chair. <laughs> and and I, didn't, I didn't spend any money on anything. But... Um, I didn't have a budget at that time. So for, for, I just didn't spend. It wasn't that I had a budget. It was that 
there was no plan. There, the plan was just never spend on anything. Right. And that was very stressful. And what I found was I, I figured out, hey, I better practice what I'm supposed to be preaching here. I got to start teaching these financial classes. You know, what should I do? I should make myself a spending plan. And you wouldn't believe how freeing that was. People think a budget or a spending plan is going to be like a straitjacket and you're going to feel like you're in prison and you have to stick to it. Oh, no, it was wonderful because and I had literally now this is 33 years ago. But I had literally $15 in my budget per month for fun, for fun things, <laughs> literally. But that, and, and it sounds small, but it was more money back then, $15. But you know what? One month I went bowling and I went out to the movies on that $15. Now, before that, I wasn't doing any bowling or any movies because the budget was too tight and I felt like I couldn't, you know, couldn't afford it. But once I had the plan, I could say that $15 is there for me to have some fun or that $20 is there for me to be able to eat out on occasion. And then I didn't have to feel guilty when I did that because I knew that if I stuck to the plan, the money was going to be there to pay the mortgage. Payment. And so I was, I was much more free and much less stressed on the spending plan than when I didn't have one. And it sounds backwards, but I encourage people to try it. I think you'll really like it. Well, Karen, I think you've said a lot of great information here. And I think a couple key points and, and takeaways that, that I picked up, and of course I'd love your input, you know, is again, starting, starting small and, and getting started. You know, uh, so for my other, other career, uh, I'm a personal trainer. And one of the first things that we say all the time is, hey, the, the hardest step of the journey is the first step, right? And even if it's a little step, it's a step in the right direction. Um, so starting small. And I do think, like you mentioned before, and, and kind of like you were just saying, applying that specific, measurable, attainable, realistic, and timely approach to, to your financial goals and, and your budget too, you know, keeping, keeping those things uh, on track. What about you? Are there any things that, that maybe you think that, that listeners really need to hear that they should take away from this episode, that if, if anything sticks, this would be it? Well, I had a little quote for you that I thought of, and that is that money can't buy happiness. And that, that quote, everybody always says, you know, money can't buy happiness. And that, that is definitely true but not managing it well can make you miserable. So <laughs> you can't just ignore it completely. It, it, it needs to be on your radar and something that you are working on, but not something that you think about every minute either. And a couple of things that I think people really uh, don't necessarily apply in their lives, again, with, with the financial life or other parts of their life. One is do your homework. And especially in the financial world, and especially these days, things are so complex. It doesn't matter whether you're opening a bank account, whether you're investing, whether you're buying a house, whether you're buying a car, um, anything that you're doing financially, even, even just going to the store practically anymore, there's a hundred different ways to pay. And they all have different um, protections, consumer protections for you, and they all have different regulations. And, it's, it's so much. So 
I, I really recommend to people to, before they take a financial step, look up information on that topic, learn about that topic. And if they learn about the topic, then when they go to talk to, for example, say it's buying a car, they're going to talk to the salesperson. Do you really want the person who's selling you the car to be the one teaching you how to buy a car? Probably <laughs> not, because it's in their best interest to get you into the most expensive car they can and get the most money out of you that they can and um, get you in a higher interest rate if they're also a lender that's going to be lending you the money for this vehicle. So what you wanna do is learn about how to buy a car, comparison shop for your financing, go in there with the knowledge that when you talk to that salesperson, you are ready to buy that car and you're not gonna get sold a bill of goods. So you know, doing your homework is, is one thing. The other thing is the rule of three. And this can be applied in any area of, you, of your life. And if, you if we have time, I'll tell you the answer story. So the rule of three is always compare three things. If, if you're getting your roof fixed, get bids from three places. If you're getting a, a new car, go to three different places. If you're getting a mortgage, make sure you get quotes from three different lenders. No matter what you're doing, interview three real estate agents before you choose one to be your buyer's agent. Whatever it is, buying a washing machine. I don't care if it's donuts that you're picking. <laughs> I mean, that, that's silly. But really, whatever you're doing, if it's a financial decision, comparing is going to get you the best deal. And we have a minute. I'll tell you about the hamsters. Is that okay? Yeah, please do. All righty. So this is the time when I broke the rule of three. Okay. Okay. And my kids wanted hamsters. All right. So, and it's a great illustration of what happens with, with uh, not doing your homework and applying the rule of three. So they want hamsters. My husband's not, not really into shopping. Okay. So the four of us go to a pet store, one pet store, not three pet stores. Okay. One pet store to, to find out about hamsters. Now, had I done any reading about hamsters? No. Had I learned what types of hamsters there were, which ones might be aggressive, which ones might be gentle, how big they grow. Nothing. I knew nothing about hamsters. Walk into the store. Everybody's having a great time. The kids are playing with the hamsters. We're asking the store clerk about the hamsters, right? <laughs> so what kind of information do we get? Well, um, the, the kids both wanted hamsters. Can these hamsters be in the same cage? Oh, sure, they can be in the same cage, sure. right? Of course. Um, because we didn't want to buy double of everything because maybe the kids would get bored with the hamsters and, and we'd have you know, a lot of expense. Um, and you know, which type should we pick? The kids seem to like this one. Oh, that one's great though. That'll be good with kids, okay? So we buy hamsters. We go home with hamsters, right? They about killed each other. Literally, they about killed each other. So what did we do? We had to go back to the store to get a double set of everything else so that we could keep the hamsters apart because otherwise they were literally going to kill each other. One of the hamsters bit one of my children. We, it seems we had an aggressive breed instead of a gentle breed. And so the kids didn't want to play with the hamsters anymore. So the hamsters literally lived out the rest of their lives in our garage. We still fed them and talked to them, but they, they did not, um, 
none of what we expected to happen worked with answers. Uh, sounds like a silly story, but what did we do? I didn't do my homework. I didn't learn about hamsters. That store clerk wanted to sell us hamsters and they didn't care whether the hamsters bit my children and they didn't care whether we were gonna have to buy a whole bunch of other equipment. Actually, they probably wanted us to buy a whole bunch of other equipment. <laughs> so, you know, you, you can't trust the person you're buying from to give you that information. And all I would have had to do is go to three different stores. Because if, I, if we had gone to three different pet stores, out of those three stores, one of the clerks would have been honest and knowledgeable and we would have learned the truth. So there's the hamster story. You can apply it to any part of your life. Do your homework and use the rule of three and you'll be good to go. It's interesting because of course, when we think about medical opinions, we always want a second opinion or a third opinion when we're talking about our, our physical health. But sometimes, you know, that same respect isn't shown to our financial health. Absolutely. First come, first serve sort of thing. Right. Um, well, Karen, I want to thank you again for being on the show. You've been fantastic. You've really illuminated a lot of things that I know I personally struggle um, to figure out. And we talked about how financial wellness can kind of fit in to that conglomerate of all the dimensions of wellness. But we can see after talking about, you know, the high divorce rate, the immense stress you felt personally, and I think the overall stress that can come from that dimension being out of balance is, is really why it's so important to, to make sure that this dimension is, is balanced and taken care of. Absolutely. And I, I, you know, I think people also don't realize how much money and money stress affects all the rest of their lives. I mean, we, we talked about the relationships, but also in employment. Um, there's a lot of statistics, not that I can necessarily put off the top of my head, but there's a lot of statistics about how financial stress interferes with your performance on the job and sometimes with keeping your job because of um, having to, for example, go to court for things or go, you know, take care of um, financial business during work time when you, when you should be working. Um, so, you know, all kinds of, I mean, of course it affects your health um, as far as you know, what you're eating, how much uh, you're spending at the grocery store, what things cost, using your resources wisely in all different aspects of your life. So I, I think, I'm not sure I can name all of the seven dimensions, but definitely I think finances would touch each one of them in some way. Absolutely. And it's always interesting to see the ripples that come from each dimension that, that again, bleed into one another. So it's just always interesting seeing those, those effects and how they ripple through and how no one dimension is more important or less important than another. Uh, and then when you get to the specifics, you can see why it's so important to keep this, this dimension balanced. And just so really quick, I do want to give Basically, a shout out to, if you enjoyed this podcast, you'll definitely want to check out our social media. You want to check out our Instagram, our Facebook, uh, YouTube, all that good stuff for more episodes, plus more content. And then, Karen, you actually sent over a great website that, if you don't mind to mention, uh, really answered a lot of the questions that I was struggling with. Uh, would you mind to mention that quickly? Yes. If that's our new program. It's called Quick Money Chats. And so... You just asked me a bunch of questions. Anybody that was listening that developed a question of their own while we were talking, 
is welcome to call us for a quick money chat or contact us. And what the way that works is they will go to this website and put in their name and contact information. And then it may be me, it may be one of our volunteers will contact them back to answer their question. So we can, we can answer most any kinds of financial questions. If it's not something that we can answer, we can point people in the right direction and tell them where they can go to get a reliable, trustworthy answer to that. And by the way, Google's not the reliable, trustworthy answer to that. Um, they, they may have good information in some cases, but how do you know it's the right information for your situation or even for this locality? You know, what you're reading may be according to the laws in California, and that may be different than what's here in Virginia. So uh, definitely encourage people to contact us with their questions and we will do our best to get them the right information as quickly as we can. Well, hey, being able to ask those uh, those questions to the experts doesn't get any easier than that. So I'll definitely have to check out the quick money chats. Um, and I would tell everyone to stay tuned. So next episode, we are looking at occupational wellness. And I feel like this piggybacks very nicely off of that. Uh, and we'll be delving into that realm a little bit more. So again, thanks so much, Karen, for coming on the show. You were fantastic. And we look forward to, to seeing you again. You're welcome. I really enjoyed it. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Karen. Thank you all for stopping in and listening. And we hope you enjoyed and tune into our next episode.